What's on your mind right now? I want to, my, my job this morning is to help put those things aside and to focus on, on Christ. Consider Him. Consider Christ who endured for sinners such hostility. So Jesus came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life as God in the flesh. He was here on purpose to do His Father's will. He taught. He worked miracles. He was amazing. And He lived a holy, holy, holy life. And then, on that Palm Sunday, on Sunday He entered Jerusalem and they were anticipating the coming of the king on that day. It was in their scriptures. They were looking for that to happen. They knew the Son of Man had to come. In fact, remember that. We'll come back to that in a moment. But there's a reason why they were laying down their palm branches and they were worshiping King of Kings and Hosanna. And we read about that as we read earlier in Luke 19. And then Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And then, probably on Monday, we're not exactly sure exactly which days this occurred, but on, early in the week, He cleanses the temple. He chases out all the money changers. He had already done it before. Now He does it again. And it's right after His entrance into Jerusalem. He made some enemies really quickly there. And we are to consider Him who endured for sinners such hostility against Himself. That week, leading up to the crucifixion and in the crucifixion, Christ went through something that no one should have to face. He endured hostility against Himself. So the text that we'll be walking through today is in Luke chapter 22. So we were reading in Luke chapter 19, and then we have these other events that are, are leading up to Christ going to the cross. His authority has been challenged. Uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, he talks about paying taxes to Caesar, so he's not leading a, a rebellion against the, the Roman government. And then they're asking these questions to try to catch him. And then he's observing this, this manipulation of, of people who were poor, this, this widow's offering. And so many bad things going on in Jerusalem. So much political corruption. He continues to teach. Then there's this plot to kill Jesus. Why? Remember, he had thrown the money changers out of the temple. He'd shown them how wicked that was. So in walking through Luke chapter 22 and 23, we're going to be addressing this question. How could they do that to him? Certainly, Jesus Christ is the main character and everything that he came to do and accomplished in these chapters. Jesus is our rescuer, our savior. He is the Messiah. But we're also going to look at the characters that are involved in these two chapters and how they responded to Jesus and who was responsible for what happened to Jesus. How could they do that 
to Him. Lord, as we consider Your Word, may we be humbled before You that You would be humbled to come to the cross. May we be in awe of what You endured, but yet, Lord, brokenhearted about it as well. Understanding the cost, the turmoil, the wickedness that was done against You. And Lord, may your love that you expressed at that moment be that that would motivate us throughout this week and the days to come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we we do have so many distractions in our world to keep us from thinking on what we really need to think on. And we have this privilege in our calendar to look toward the Easter Sunday, we, we call it that. It's the Resurrection Sunday. I wish that we would call it that. The Sunday we commemorate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive, amen? amen. And He's coming again. And so that gives us, that's what all of history is all about. But it's good to stop and consider what happened then. And may that move us to love our Lord in a way that maybe has not been there before. And then would affect our choices, our ways, how we observe the world around us. My youngest daughter, uh, as you know, she's a, she's a registered nurse. She spent a number of years in the, the emergency department, and I think she's seen everything. Uh, you talk about what they see in the emergency room, and that, that's for sure what she's had to face. And amazingly, when I see something like that, when I see somebody in an accident or or somebody in the hospital, I go, oh, I don't, I don't want to get close to that. But she's drawn to that. That's part of that gifting of mercy that a number of you have. When you see somebody hurting, you want to help. That's her way. In fact, when we watch uh, medical shows about emergency rooms or whatever, and, uh, and something will be going on, it's just chaos, and things are flying all over the place, and they're jumping on there, and they're doing the job, and, and I'll say, is it really like that? And she said, oh, yeah, and worse. She's seen all of it. However, when she observed cruelty done to another person, uh, even though she's seen all of that in the emergency department, when she observes, maybe on the screen, watching some show that has some, some sort of uh, graphic violence done against somebody, obviously not bad programming, but, but that's part of the, the show that they're... they're talking about something, or they're showing something about how somebody was hurt by somebody else. And she watches that, and, she, and, it, and she, it's just crushing to her. And to this day, I mean, this, this is the way she was even as a little child, but even to this day, uh, when, when something is depicted in front of her of cruelty committed on screen towards somebody else, she has to look away. Uh, she'll, she'll pull a pillow over her head or something, and, and, or she'll walk out of the room. She just can't take it. That's what's meant by a phrase we're going to read in Luke chapter 23, verse 48. Would you start there, then we'll come back to Luke 22. Verse 48 of Luke 23. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, so we're going to walk through this, and when they, when they saw what had actually happened and who it was done against, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. That was their expression like what we would do of, of covering our head or closing our eyes or, or turning away. 
They were, they were totally in shock over what had just been done. This extreme sorrow over what had been done. This wrong that had been done against Jesus. Horrified shock. That's what you need to understand here. This was bad. Man can be cruel. We've all seen this in the news sources this week, even multiple accounts of horrible war atrocities, war crimes. And you are asking that question, how could they do that to those people? Someone needs to be held accountable. And here's the reality. We have a just God who is a just judge who will hold all sin accountable. Guaranteed. That day is coming. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. There will be an accounting. So come with me for a few minutes to the courtroom in heaven. We're looking at advance here. But as it looks back on Luke chapter 22 and 23. On trial are those who are responsible for Christ's death. The defendants are all in their places. Who are they? Well, number one, recognize those who are responsible behind the scenes. There's a group here huddled together now, a group of men once so proud and cocky and controlling. Now they're cowering in the corner of this courtroom before the throne in heaven. Be sure your sin will find you out. In the garden we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 54, if you'll see this in your scriptures, then they, the question is who is they, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. There's a cross-reference to Luke 22, back to John chapter 18. In fact, you can turn there if you wish. John chapter 18, verse 13, we read that first they led him to Annas. That's the way it's pronounced in that language. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So number one, you have the mob crime boss. Oh, he's... He's got a religious position. He's very high in politics. There's a priest named Annas. This, this first authority that, that they brought Jesus to. There were two houses close together with a courtyard between. And this man had been the former high priest. He's the authority that, that, that gave the marching orders. He was behind the scenes. He was the the mob crime boss. The guy, for, for all practical purposes, controlled the high priest's office. His sons had served after him, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, held this office. But Annas was still in control. Kind of like a president who is out of office but still welds political control. But even more so here, because this man controlled the money. And he made big money off of all of this that was going on in the temple. Remember, Jesus cleansed the temple just a day or two earlier, just a few days earlier. 
So this man controlled the monopoly of the money changers and all the animal merchants. And he got a huge kickback on these things. He would charge exorbitant fees. No wonder he was working to remove Jesus behind the scenes. Then there's the organizer. Maybe the community organizer, so to speak. We see Caiaphas. He's serving as the high priest, but he's really serving at his father-in-law's direction. And it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews, John 18, verse 14, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so let's just, let's just get together and get this job done. He's the organizer. There are many others. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 63. 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were, were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming Jesus. Verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council, and they said, if, the, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, and then underline this, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus told them exactly who he was. In quoting from Daniel chapter 7, he is this Messiah that they knew with the title, the Son of Man. In fact, we know they understood that because of what they said just following this. And they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say, I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard all from ourselves from his own lips. So what you're looking in on here is the kangaroo court. You had the man behind the scenes who was controlling everything. Then you had the organizer who was getting the word out and getting everybody in place. And then you had this kangaroo court of officials. This group had become a very corrupt, politically driven agency. They were called the Sanhedrin. And here they were conducting a, a totally illegal tribunal. A cowardly kangaroo court, we could call it. In the middle of the night, they set aside all their rules of practice, of fairness and justice, which really was a good system, but they set that aside in order to get accomplished in this dark room, in the middle of the night, what they wanted accomplished. And that was to get rid of Jesus. It was illegal on a number of levels, at least seven levels. For instance... The trial was held in the high priest's home, just across the courtyard from the, the father, then now at the son-in-law's house, in, in Caiaphas's house. It wasn't even held in a courtroom. They allowed for no, no defense. There was contradictory false evidence that was brought up. And they did not, they did not look for two or three witnesses to collaborate or co corroborate. And they condemned him the very night that he was accused, which was against their law. So they were breaking the law in order to accuse Jesus. They manufactured these false witnesses and these false charges. 
And then they bullied the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, into yielding to their will. We come to the second. Recognize those who were directly responsible. We saw those who were kind of behind the scenes, getting accomplished what they wanted in order to be able to bring it before the courts of Rome. There were three trials before the Gentile rulers that night. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 through 5 in your Bibles. Luke 23, verses 1 through 5. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So the whole bunch, at least 71 of the Sanhedrin and many others, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Was that so? Absolutely not. In fact, he had just shown that they were supposed to give tribute to Caesar just a chapter earlier. And they said that he is the Christ, a king. And that was true. He is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the king who would come. And Pilate asked them, asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people. Now, wait a second. Who's stirring up the people? <laughs> he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So we come to this situation where the coward has to make the call. First, Pilate concluded that Jesus was innocent. Tradition says that he was just so fearful of the crowd that even though he knew what was true, he set that aside in order to avoid the crowd. He said, I'm not responsible. Tradition tells us that Pilate, after this, became very agitated, almost mad. He made many foolish political moves, mishandled several other uprisings, was sent back to Rome, and then later committed suicide, a total failure. Why? Rather than provide justice, he was trying to please the crowd. Pulling a political maneuver to avoid having to face the responsibility, Pilate handed him over to Herod, the contemptuous one. Luke 23, verses 6 through 12. We're just walking through this passage, looking at who it was that was condemning Christ. Is that actually possible? Look at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. They were from the same region, actually not far apart at all, but they'd never come in contact person to person. And he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He, you know, he'd heard about these miracles. Okay, maybe we get one here. This, this would be a lot of fun. So he, Herod, questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus did not answer him. You see, Herod had no authority over him. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. 
And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him, and here's that word, with contempt, and mocked him, despising him. Then, arrayed with him in splendid, splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. They'd been enemies, but this is what brought them together. For before this day, they had been at enmity with each other. So back to Pilate. So now Pilate, what's he going to do? He thought he passed this on, but now it's back in his responsibility. And he still is wanting to avoid that responsibility. He must face it. Instead, he appeases the crowd by torturing Jesus, using the cat of nine tails. Repeated blows, horrendous torture. Many did not live through that kind of a torture, but he did that in order to please the crowd. Look at verse 21. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death, and I will therefore punish and release him. But they rioted there. Yes, we've seen pictures of that even in our own country in these last years. When a riot breaks out, it's chaos and there's no rule. And they were demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified. And those voices prevailed. So Pilate washed his hands saying, it's not my fault. And he submitted to the mob. All these people screaming, crucify him. They knew very visually, because they saw it probably not, not every day on a regular basis, they saw this crucifixion happening that the Romans would bring in on the people that they wanted to silence. This crucifixion, this horrible, horrible crucifixion. And they kept screaming, crucify him, crucify him. That's what Jesus had to endure. And not only the crowd... But the soldiers joined the crowd. Notice this. Note the cruelty of these Roman soldiers on duty. There's a Roman cohort here consisting of probably 600 soldiers. How, How many of them were on duty at that time? I don't know. But they were an elite unit. Probably Syrian troops brought down who also spoke the language Aramaic. And for them, it was just another day on the job, another crucifixion. Yet, as they saw this crowd that was normally angry at them, angry at this one that they were crucifying, it spurred them on, and, that, and they, were, they were into the cruelty, into the mockery of this one who was hanging on the cross. And they heaped upon him wickedness out of their own heart. We read in Luke chapter 23, verse 36, The soldiers also mocked him. They were responsible. Matthew says that they stripped Jesus of his clothing. They took that first spike, drove it through his feet. Then they secured the the beam, the cross beam, laid him on it, arched his elbows back over the beam, twisting his arm and placing his wrist on the beam. And they took a second spike, and drove it through his wrist, and then they repeated that same process with the other arm. Then they lifted that cross over that prepared base, that hole in the ground three to four feet deep, 
and drop the cross into that hole, bones ripping out of socket with a jolt. Horror. How could they do this to him? The Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. And he couldn't breathe. The cruelty of that crucifixion, he couldn't breathe. And so with great difficulty, lifting, catching a breath, and then speaking these words, he said seven words. The first, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That word forgive is so special. Afiyami. Dismiss this. Send it away. Jesus was there to accomplish what no one else could do, which was to send away our sin. The scapegoat, never to be brought back again. Dismissing it. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There may be at least one of the soldiers who were there in that mob and that crowd who eventually understood these words of forgiveness. History accounts that the centurion in charge later believed. Could it be that the one who actually drove the nails into Christ's wrists and feet, this man, could it be that he is in heaven? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look at Luke 23, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. How could they do this to him? See those behind the scenes? We see those actually performing the crucifixion. And then number three, recognize we all have a part in Christ's death. Two sinners are on the scene that represent all of us. They're actually hanging on crosses beside Jesus. They had been caught in their sin. They were paying for their sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 tells us. We're all sinners. There's, There's none of us that's not guilty. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two sinners hanging on crosses beside Jesus. Two thieves. They had broken the law. They were getting what they had, had, had coming to them. The consequence of their crime. We're all sinners. We've all done something like that. Lied, stolen, lusted, anger. Right on down the list. Just the Ten Commandments, let alone many more. We're all sinners. We all deserve to be in that position. We all must face the reality that our sin must be paid for. Two sinners, two thieves. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanging railed on him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, I love this, Jesus, rescuer, Jesus, my Savior, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two thieves, two sinners. One rejected Christ. We read, he railed on Jesus. That word there is literally our word, blasphemed Jesus. You aren't for real. He blasphemed Christ. But the other repented. There are two responses. You can turn to Jesus and say, remember me. Or you can be the one who is rejecting. Rejecting or repenting and believing. These two represent the billions on this planet now and those that have lived before. We're all in that crowd. Responsible for what happened to Jesus. But remember, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Send this consequence away. And Jesus was there to pay the penalty so that could happen. Reject or repent. God commends His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that... Man on the cross next to Jesus said, He has done no condemnation. We receive the condemnation that's our sins. We justly receive that. But He has done nothing wrong. The reason for that is in John chapter 3. Let's look at this again and look at verse 17 after we read verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, that condemnation, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It was now the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. A horrendous crime. The most horrendous crime in all of humanity committed against Christ. Those behind the scenes rejected Jesus. Those in political authority rejected Jesus. 
The crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him, rejected Jesus. The one thief on the cross rejected Jesus. But the one who understood his need for forgiveness and the thief who understood his sinfulness and his need for rescue from Jesus the rescuer, they received life. You're one or the other. So meditate on these things this week. If you're not one who is trusting in Jesus Christ, let me implore you to turn from your rejection of Jesus and call out and say to Him, Remember me, Lord. I need you. We desperately need a Savior who loves us, who will pay the penalty for our sin, who will purchase for us life in Christ and give us His righteousness so that we can be with Him forever, even as Jesus promised this thief who was on the cross. That is what life is all about. And when you make that understanding and that decision, that turning to Jesus, you begin to live for the first time. You understand that what happened, though it was cruel and horrendous, is the thing that gives us hope for everlasting life. So here's your takeaway. As you read Luke chapter 22 and 23, and you read all of these horrible things that were done to Jesus, remember this. You are responsible for your response to Jesus. Walk in this truth. Face that responsibility. And relish the forgiveness that Jesus accomplished because he as the son of man the son of God the I am on that cross loves you and his blood covers your sin oh God this week as we meditate on your arrival in Jerusalem the conflict that was created because of that because people didn't want to respond to you the torture that was done to you what you faced on that cross on that hill called Golgotha. What you endured for our sake so that we might have life. We just got to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the blood applied. And Lord, we anticipate next Sunday as we come together again, rejoicing in your rejection, in your rejoicing in your resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, that you won the victory. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know the rest of the story. And may we be filled with passion for you and thankfulness and joy because of your victory that's already been won. So, Lord, we want to say thank you. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know you as Savior, or maybe just been going through the motions, has all the religion, but they've not really turned to you and said, Remember me, Lord. Oh God, may today be that moment when the Holy Spirit draws them unto salvation and they would truly be saved. Give them courage. Give them faith. Give them confidence in you as God who loves them to do what they cannot do. God, I need your salvation the same way. And I thank you for your salvation that you provided simply by saying, Jesus, I want you. I need you. I pray that somebody listening today would grasp that truth and turn to you and believe and rejoice in what you've accomplished already, now and forever, 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.